This episode is part of Season 1 of MesoTV, a program created and produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. We thank the following sponsors for their support of our organization and its work. Novacure, Bellick & Fox, LLP, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC, Vogelzang Law, and Merrill Lynch. So, Dr. Chirpek, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I know that, you know, you've spent many years uh, involved in uh, the genetics behind mesothelioma, and I just wondered if you'd talk a little bit about your credentials and your role in this disease, uh, and we can get the conversation started. And thank you. Sure. So, my name is Dr. Jane Chirpek, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, I recently spent quite a few years at the University of Chicago working very closely with Dr. Hetty Kindler, who's an expert in mesothelioma there and has a fantastic clinic. Um, I am a hematology oncology trained physician, but my special area of expertise and interest is in hereditary forms of cancer. So I see lots of families in my practice where there's a family history of cancer of the same type or different types and try to help them figure out, is there a gene that's contributing to why that's happening? And then using their personal risk factor information and their genetics to try to prevent cancer for themselves and their family. And I think it's been really exciting for the field because most people thought that these inherited genes really only had a role in the future and thinking about prevention. But now for many cancers, they're actually impacting how a patient is treated for their cancer. And so it's now even become a more integral part for many patients. So in terms of uh, hereditary, so we have you know, the two different types of genetics that we look at. We look at somatic and germline. Could you speak a little bit about the difference? Uh, and then we can continue to use that language as we move forward. Right, and I'm happy to do that because I think setting those definitions up front is very helpful. We use things interchangeably. So we sort of use germline or inherited to mean the same thing. Um, but the germline is essentially your, all of your body tissues. So what is the DNA that you were born with that you inherited from your parents? Um, that is considered your germline DNA. So the normal DNA and it's the DNA that you'll pass on to your children. Um, the somatic or acquired is another term we sometimes use for that are changes that happen to somebody's cells in their body as a consequence of errors that just happen by uh, a natural process of ourselves having to divide and make more cells. Um, also as a result of damage. So if you get exposures that damage the DNA, like sunlight, um, smoking, these things, um, they damage our DNA and those are acquired changes um, that are happening. So in, in you know, in the in mesothelioma, um, we have, I, we, I know we have identified some germline mutations. Could you maybe list those mutations that we are aware of now? Um, and what are the cancers may be associated with those germline mutations? Mm -hmm. So the gene that is best understood, so just to kind of take a step back for people who don't speak genetic language, I'm gonna kind of use some of the uh, language that we use with patients a lot. So our body's cells have DNA in them and that DNA contains all of the instructions that tell us, tell our body's cells what to do. 
um, and on that DNA are genes, and each of these genes, we have two copies. We get one copy from our mom, one copy from our dad. And so for each gene, we have two copies of that gene. Um, and one of the most frequent genes that has germline changes in it in patients with mesothelioma is a gene called BAP1. And there have been years of research, um, actually it was discovered in 2011 as the cause, the first real understood cause of her, a hereditary form of mesothelioma. And if you carry one abnormal copy of that BAP1 gene in all of your body cells, you're at risk for mesothelioma, both in the lungs, uh, in the pleura, and in that belly, the peritoneum. Um, but you're also at risk for other cancers, things like melanoma of the skin or of the eye, which is a rare cancer. Um, these other types of basal cell skin cancers, um, kidney cancer, and probably a few others. So that gene is uh, the first that was understood, and it is the most frequent when we take all comer mesothelioma patients with either pleural or peritoneal disease, and we sequence a large group of genes that cause hereditary forms of cancer. Um, that is the one that will come up the most common. And I think what was surprising is that, you know, just two years ago, there were four groups basically that all found the same thing. So definitely BAP1 is common as, a, as the most common cause of hereditary forms of mesothelioma, but there were a number of other genes. So the total number is now something like 26 different genes that we have found inherited genetic changes in. Some of those genes we don't yet understand um, if there's a real true cancer risk to them, but they're in the same pathway um, in terms of how they function in the body. And so we think that they might be involved, but we still have a lot of work to do. But there are other genes like the gene BRCA2, which is one of the second most common um, inherited gene changes that we see in patients with mesothelioma. That gene we understand very well, because it has been studied for a much longer in families where breast and ovarian cancer cluster in the family. And we've learned a lot more about that gene that it probably helps contribute to many other cancers. And so um, it's not definitively proven that that gene for sure causes mesothelioma, but when we find it more frequently than we expect in mesothelioma patients, than among healthy people, we think there's a role and we have a lot more work to do to try to understand you know, what all of the details are in terms of how does that drive risk, does it drive risk, um, and things like that because there are lots of other families who carry inherited changes in that gene that don't get mesothelioma. So we have more work to do, but we have been really surprised at how many patients um, have these inherited changes. So a mesothelioma group of patients is similar to other cancers like ovarian cancer or um, colon cancer where we know there's a strong hereditary cause. And so I think that was a really big surprise when um, all of us were publishing those results. So could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, because so many patients are worried about having this family risk, um, what percentage of patients with mesothelioma actually have one of these inherited mutations? Mm -hmm. So 12%, so one out of eight. And it varies by pleural or peritoneal. So if you have um, peritoneal, it's closer to one in four. Um, if you have pleural disease, it's about 7%. So um, more like one in 13. So is that a significant number in terms of you were to compare it to other cancers? 
It is. Yeah. So um, what we've, you know, in in ovarian cancer, for example, that has been long understood to have a significant hereditary component. It's around 20% of patients. So one out of five that will have a hereditary cause. When you take all breast cancer patients, it's closer to probably five to 10% that have a hereditary cause. Um, And more recently, when people look at patients who have Um, advanced cancer, meaning that it moved outside of this place where it started. We also use the word metastatic. Um, So uh, for those patients, about 12% or about one in eight have an inherited mutation. So mesothelioma really falls in this group of um, cancers that are enriched for these inherited um, uh, genetics. And it may just be that for some cancers, we haven't even studied it. You know, that's one reason I got involved in this disease was because you know, I was taking care of all sorts of other patients with hereditary cancer syndromes. Um, and, you know, mesothelioma really hadn't been thoroughly looked at for a lot of these genes. But when we were taking their family histories, they looked just like those families. And so we said, yep, we better look at this too. But there are some cancers that haven't even been looked at yet. So, um, you know, uh, there's still a lot of work in our field to do for other cancers too. Mm-hmm. So is there a reason then, would you, is there a reason for patients to be checked for genetic mutation? Would you check everyone or would you look at family history to guide you in terms of checking? So family history can be helpful if it's present. So if you have somebody who has mesothelioma with a family member with another mesothelioma or even more so a melanoma of the eye, that patient has a very high likelihood of carrying a BAP1 mutation, for example. Um, If the family history has other cancers like breast and ovarian, that probably increases the chances that you're gonna find something. Um, But the lack of family history doesn't help. And that's for two reasons. Um, Number one is we sometimes have very small families or somebody who's adopted and we really just don't know the family history. Not every family family also um, shares their cancer story. Um, you know, in different cultures or different, um, you know, backgrounds, sometimes it's kept very private. And so it's not shared with the family. And then people don't have the benefit of using that information. Um, I think that's even more prevalent in cancers where people think it is related to an exposure because people don't think that there's a connection. And so they don't gather that information. Um, The clinicians might not ask for that information. Um, So that's another potential reason. Okay, and I know in breast cancer, we look at some, uh, you know, some ethnicities as having a higher prevalence of germline mutations. Do you see that in mesothelioma? So there can be because some of the genes overlap. So the gene BRCA1, BRCA2, these are two genes where we found um, genetic changes in patients with mesothelioma. And there are specific sites within those genes that are enriched or more common in in patients of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, for example. Um, But we know that in other genes, other sites are. So kind of the ethnic background just helps us understand if it's consistent when we find an inherited mutation. And sometimes it does increase the chances that we're gonna find a mutation in an individual patient. And then BAP1, um, I don't believe that there was any ethnicity that had been delineated that I think it was just, you know, all comers, you know, in testing. 
Yeah, right now, I don't think there's any, there's known to be any specific ethnic um, kind of uh, higher prevalence in any specific ethnic background. Um, most of the mutations in these genes are private, meaning that each family carries its own unique genetic change in that gene. So it's not like it's the same exact mutation that each family has. And so they're individually very rare, the specific sites that are, um, are, are abnormal. Um, Dr. Carbona has done a really interesting study looking at this very, very large family with one specific BAP, um, BAP, uh, BAP1 gene mutation that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And so sometimes you don't realize that people are related because their ancestors are so far back. Um, so that is possible because most of these genes don't affect somebody's ability to have children. So they can be passed on from generation to generation and not everyone who inherits one of these genetic changes will ever get cancer at all. So I think that's another challenge sometimes um, that, you know, it's not a guarantee that anyone's going to get a cancer. So we tell people what we know about the risks and all the different tools that we can use to try to decrease those risks. Um, but even if we do them, for some people that might be overkill because they never would have gotten cancer. And for other people, if we don't do them and they get a cancer, we would feel terrible that we missed the opportunity to help them prevent that one. Right, because I think some of the cancers that are associated with these genes are, you know, cancers that are curable uh, if found in early stages, um, and we don't want to miss that opportunity. And, you know, with mesothelioma as well, with all the advancements that are being made, we certainly want to make sure that, you know, we pick these diseases up, you know, at an early, uh, early stage. So um, I guess that, that, you know, gets us to this, you know, this, um, you know, the story of the hereditary form. Um, and we don't have any treatment, uh, you know, per se for these genes at this point in mesothelioma. Am I correct? Not yet, but I think there are some very interesting leads um, and there's been several publications kind of swirling around this idea. Um, and there's a paradigm that sort of exists already in ovarian cancer, as I mentioned, where these genes are also enriched. Um, BAP1 is not, but BRCA1, BRCA2, and some of the other genes that are in the same pathway that we find also in mesothelioma patients are being used actually to guide therapy because people who have a tumor that lacks a gene in this specific pathway, that's a DNA repair pathway, um, they are more sensitive, their tumors are more sensitive um, to cisplatin or carboplatin, um, and also a whole class of drugs that are called PARP inhibitors, which are being tried in mesothelioma now. And um, in other cancers, knowing the mutation status of some of these genes is really important because the people who have the mutations are the ones who are more likely to benefit from the treatments. Um, so obviously for mesothelioma, we want that paradigm to work too, because that would be really helpful to say, great, you have this, now we can guide you to that. And it's more likely to work rather than everybody getting the same thing. And we're not sure who's going to benefit and who's not going to benefit. Right. And I think, you know, you know, one of the beauties of this is that, you know, when you uh, move into some of these other malignancies, you have lot larger populations. So the studies can get done quickly um, with results. So this way, if there's a you know, way to translate some of this over to mesothelioma, we certainly may benefit by some of the research being done in, in other diseases. So I think that's, that's extremely promising. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Dr. Chirpik, I guess um, the real complicated issue now is when we talk about somatic mutations and 
how do we target them and are they real? Are they, you know, driving the tumor? Um, there's so many, you know, it's a complicated story. And I wonder if you could just take us through this in a very simple form of, you know, a somatic mutation. How does it lead to a cancer and what potentially could be done? Right. That's not such a simple question, but thank you. We'll, we'll try to make a little headway at least. Um, okay. So mm -hmm. right now it's not necessarily standard of care to do tumor profiling is kind of what some people call it when we look at a number of genes in the patient's tumor. Um, definitely there is research being done, um, but it's not standard of care necessarily everywhere where if you're diagnosed with mesothelioma, your tumor automatically gets sequenced for a number of genes. And that's in contrast to many other diseases where it is standard because we know that if you find this specific change in the tumor, you then get treatment A instead of treatment B. And so obviously we would love to have those things in mesothelioma where you can say, yep, this specific thing means you are highly likely to benefit from drug A. Um, and so that is um, work that people are trying to do. Um, there are definitely lots of different changes that people have found as acquired mutations in mesothelioma tumors. But so far, most of them, we don't understand how they impact treatment. Um, they definitely impact biology of the tumor and how fast it's growing um, and other factors. And sometimes it helps with diagnosis. You know, if mesothelioma is challenging to diagnose in some cases, seeing the correct pattern of mutations can sometimes help with that. Um, so, people have been cataloging these long lists of genetic changes, but what we understand is only what we've looked at. So in some tumors, we shine a tiny spotlight. So if you think of like our whole entire genome as this long, but we only look at this little slice in the middle of this many genes, that's all we know about. So then we can do something called exome sequencing where we target another portion of that huge genome. And then we understand another potential list of things that are wrong with the tumor. Then you could do something called whole genome where you basically are looking at the whole entire thing and very few of those have been done in mesothelioma. So we know some things about the changes that happen in the tumor, um, but we don't know everything. And right now we don't yet know how to use that information to benefit the patient in the clinic um, in terms of tumor testing. We did, we showed and so did um, uh, Dr. Cabron's group that if you have an inherited mutation, your survival may actually be longer after platinum therapy than if you don't have an inherited mutation. So from a prognosis perspective, inherited mutations have been helpful there, but so far we don't yet really know how to use the tumor genetic changes to understand tumor behavior or treatment clinically. Um, and that is work that's ongoing. So um, if, do these mutations change over time? Um, if you have a specific mutation and either you have uh, chemotherapy or immunotherapy or radiation therapy, can that change these mutations? Can you um, have a whole new set of mutations that you might have to look at? That's a great question and the answer is yes. So even from place to place within a single tumor, so if you took a biopsy from one location and you took a biopsy from a completely different location, they might have slightly different mutation profiles. Um, so this is challenging, right? Because you wanna be able to take, get a whole profile of the whole entire thing, but that's very complicated because each cell in a tumor might actually be slightly different. 
um, it's sort of like a garden where you know each mutation might give that cell or a weed, for example, a better chance at growing or overgrowing other plants that are growing there, right? And so this can happen within a tumor in the body um, at different sites. And so people are doing all sorts of very fancy, sophisticated techniques to try to understand how each cell differs from each other and how that all works together to create a tumor. Um, and it's challenging for the clinic because let's say the majority of the cells have a particular group of mutations and they're very sensitive to chemotherapy. So the chemotherapy gets rid of those. If there were a small number of cells that for some reason acquired a new genetic change that makes them resistant to your chemo, then of course those are the ones that survive and those are the ones that can then grow and come back. Um, and if we're just taking a piece of a tumor, we might miss that. We might not even know those are there. Um, and so for mesothelioma, it's a, a even more challenging because it's hard to get at that tumor, right? So you can't just easily draw somebody's blood and know all of the tumor yet. Um, and, and so this is something that people are working on too. Well, how can we get better access to tumor DNA where it's easier for the patient and they don't have to have many biopsies and things like that? Um, this is another challenge um, that's especially challenging for this disease. And are we finding the same challenge in other, in other cancers that, you know, um, multiple biopsy spots will have different mutations? So is this sort of common across the landscape? Definitely, um, especially these studies are, are um, uh, well delineated and things like leukemia where we follow them over time at relapse, there's always new changes that we find um, or in metastatic disease, the, if you biopsy the original tumor site versus a, a site that has spread to a new location, they might be different. Um, and so I think that helps us understand what we see in the clinic sometimes that, you know, you treat with chemotherapy, some areas shrink, others don't, some grow while the others shrink. That might be part of why that's happening um, because even within a tumor, you know, there are different populations of cells that behave differently. Thank you. That's, you know, I think that's so important for us all to know. So I guess now to take this to a sort of a practical application, at this period of time, would you recommend that patients have, you know, not the germline, because I think you've already, you have been very specific. I think that is valuable for any patient with mesothelioma, but with these spontaneous mutations, should they be doing this outside of a clinical trial or outside of a research institution? Is there value to having it done now? Or should they, you know, wait until they're either enrolled in a clinical trial or have a treatment option that will be dependent upon a particular mutation? So I might defer that specific question um, to one of mm -hmm. our mesothelioma treatment experts because they okay. might use it in a different way than I'm familiar with from a treatment perspective. Um, but mm -hmm. absolutely, I would encourage all patients that are willing to participate in research. So, you know, there's a number of centers around the country that have tumor banking and patient um, registry protocols to keep track of trying to figure this out and use the, all of this information and the generous gift that patients are giving us to try to help at the whole population, you know, to know what can we, what does this information do for us to help move the field forward and help people um, with treatment now. But in my world, obviously the ideal is prevention. Can we ever get to, we understand what drives 
why this happened so we can prevent it from happening so people don't even have to deal with it. That is my life goal. But um, in the treatment setting, there is absolutely um, a lot of utility with some of these, but we have to know how to use it. It's such a complicated process as I, we've been kind of discussing that you know, being able to find one or two or a couple of things that actually really impact the treatment decisions would be super helpful. And um, I guess a final question would be, um, you know, we talked about, you know, germline testing. Uh, does uh, saliva as well as blood hold the same value in terms of collecting for, uh, for the analysis? It's a great question. And um, basically saliva is essentially blood because a lot of the DNA in a saliva sample comes from white blood cells that are in our mouth to help protect us from infection. Um, so we think of them as pretty much equivalent. So I do testing for people who have blood cancers. And if I test their saliva, I find their blood cancer. Um, and so uh, the genes that are changed in their blood cancer. And so, you know, those two, we kind of think of as equals from a germline perspective. If somebody does have multiple different cancers and one of them happens to be a blood cancer, we actually have to use a different tissue that isn't affected. So we'll do things like a skin biopsy to try to get germline DNA. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So Dr. Chirpak, thank you very much. Um, is there anything that I didn't ask that you think is important for uh, mesothelioma patients and their families to be aware of? Um, share your family history. You know, um, mm -hmm. we, we definitely see benefit in that because even if we can't find a gene, sometimes it does change how we screen and prevent cancers for other mm -hmm. patients. And those things right now are best understood for colon cancer and breast cancer. Um, but you know, the sharing your family history, understanding your family's story um, in medicine in general um, informs how we manage patients. So um, the more patients can do that with their families, it's really helpful. I've had people where I'm counseling them about a change I found in their genes and they say, oh, I don't think I have any family history. But then they go back to whoever the family historian is who actually keeps all of these things. And it's amazing what comes out in the family and the pattern of the thing that I expected was actually there. Um, and that makes us treat people in the family differently. So um, I would strongly encourage people to try to as much as possible, uh, share that gift with your family so they can use it for their benefit. Right. So I guess, you know, especially now during quarantine, um, you know, this could be, you know, wonderful project. I mean, we're all trying to connect with family and to sort of escape this social isolation. And with Zoom, having multiple family members on together, you might be able to ferret out some of the information that's missing and you know, recall um, can, can also trigger someone else to recall something. So I think that's a great piece of advice is to, you know, talk family history, talk health, um, because all of this could be life-saving. So Dr. Chirpak, thank you so much for the work you're doing in this disease. I, you know, with a rare disease, funding is difficult and having people interested in mesothelioma is just crucial uh, to this population. So I thank you very, very much for your work. And thank you for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. And I'm just really appreciative of all the patients who have let me do the research. And I learned a lot from them and their families. Thank you. Have a good day then. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.